0: Welcome back to the Rebel Core Content Podcast. Core content for anyone, anywhere, and just in time. I'm Anand Swami Nathan, and this week I'm back with Marco Preparisi for part two on chest strains. Last time we chatted about needle decompression, but this week we're going to get into some of the general concepts on chest tube placement itself. Before we dive in, Marco, welcome back.
1: Hey, Swami, Thanks for having me again. This is a great time to review the management of chest tubes since we have pneumothorax fresh on our minds from the last time.
0: Yeah, it's absolutely true, and you had mentioned how with COVID, we have seen quite a few pneumothoraces in our emergency department, either from some problems with central line placement or just the high pressures that some of our patients are dealing with, and almost like, I wouldn't call it quite a spontaneous pneumothorax, it's related to the vent, but we're seeing quite a few of these, and now that our trauma volume is starting to tick up again, it's uh, approaching summer, we're going to see even more pneumothoraces to deal with. So last time, as you mentioned, we focused our attention on traumatic pneumo pneumothoraces. But this time I want to start a little bit on the spontaneous pneumothorax. And even though both of these are called pneumothoraces, they're really quite different in how we manage them. The old, and by old, I mean last year, the approach, at least in the US, was to simply place a drain on everyone with a spontaneous pneumo, likely a small bore one since we're just dealing with air. And then you'd admit the patient and that was it. You were pretty much done. But there's been more and more talk about observing these patients as opposed to putting that
1: tube in. Yeah, the reasons behind placing a chest tube are essentially threefold. We're afraid the patient may develop a tension pneumothorax, or we're afraid the patient will get lost to follow-up. Or placing a chest tube feels easy and relatively safe, so why not just do it and get it over with? The concept of managing pneumothorax with observation is not new, and there's evidence dating back to the 1960s comparing observation to intervention. But until this year, we had no randomized control trials comparing observation and intervention in patients with spontaneous pneumothorax. During my time in emergency medicine, there's been lots of talk on the optimal size of chest tube. Can we put in a pigtail catheter? Or do we use the traditional 36 French fire hose that used to be popular when I was training? If a patient came in with a pneumo, you can rest assured they were getting a chest tube. The only debate was what size. But now we're asking, do we need to do anything at all? And to add to the confusion, there are conflicting guidelines from our medical societies. The British Thoracic Society and European Respiratory Society recommend needle aspiration first, and the American College of Chest Physicians recommend placing a chest tube first. So what do we do? I think that's really the question. Which of these is the right approach? Or are they
0: all reasonable approaches? I'll tell you, Marco, if it was me who came in with a spontaneous pneumo and you gave me the option between I can place this small needle and suck out some air or I can place a 36 French chest tube, I would definitely be voting for the small needle. That 36 French chest tube is huge. And and the patients do get complications from that. So it is an important question for us to ask. Is there an optimal way to do this or... Do we not need to do anything? And will not doing anything lead to more complications down the line? And like you said, we do now have a randomized control trial in March of this year. There was a big study in the New England Journal of Medicine looking at this question specifically.
1: Can you just briefly review what it was that they found? Patients with large primary spontaneous pneumothorax were randomized to observation or intervention with a small bore chest tube and placed on water seal. A repeat chest x-ray was performed at one hour. If there was re-expansion of the lung and no air leak, the tube was clamped and a repeat x-ray was performed at four hours. If there was no recurrence of pneumothorax, the tube was pulled and the patients were discharged. Patients were again reassessed at 24 to 72 hours, and they had follow-up visits and repeat x-rays at two, four, and eight weeks. The authors found that in a select population of patients with primary spontaneous pneumothorax, observation was not inferior to intervention. Now, the observation group did take nearly twice as long to achieve radiographic resolution, but symptom resolution was similar, and there were less adverse events, less recurrence, less days hospitalized, less days missed from work, less procedures, less hospital visits, and less patients requiring chest tube management for more than three days in the observation group.
0: It's pretty amazing. I don't know that if you told me this six months ago that I would have really believed that we could take a patient with a significant size pneumothorax. I think that this group was looking in the 15 to 20% range, if maybe a little bit higher than that, and do nothing, and just give them a little bit of oxygen, watch them for a couple of hours, and then send them on their way, and that would be okay. There's a lot of caveats to this, and Tarlan Hedayati put together a great review on this article in Rebel EM. We'll link that in the show notes I think some of the caveats are about how good your follow-up is, and one of the big ones, Marco, is how much your inpatient teams or your consulting services buy into this approach. You can't do this on your own. This is not time to be a cowboy, and, and in this study, they looked at the small board chest tube versus observation, but we've mentioned a couple of times this idea of just needle drainage, so placing a needle, draining the air, and then going from there. How much do you know about this approach of needle aspiration,
1: and what does the data say on that? In all papers that looked at needle aspiration, the procedure was performed at the second intercostal space in the midclavicular line. Now, Swami, we just reviewed the literature on needle decompression. And if we're going to do this procedure based on what we already know from needle decompression, it's reasonable to extrapolate that data and perform the needle aspiration in the fourth or fifth intercostal space in the anterior axillary line. The landmarks are easier to identify. There are less critical structures to worry about and the chest wall is thinner in this area. Now, I would use ultrasound guidance, or at a minimum, just take a peek and make sure our landmarks are correct and the patient doesn't have an elevated hemidiaphragm or something unexpected. Now, it's important to see what's available to you at your shop. You can do this with something simple as a 14-gauge angiocath, a three-way stopcock, and a 50cc syringe, but some shops have cavity drainage trays for thoracentesis that can also be used.
0: And let's talk a little bit about the data. You mentioned that there are some studies on this. What does the data look like for needle aspiration?
1: The literature on needle aspiration is not robust. There are six randomized control trials with just about 450 patients that looked at needle aspiration versus chest tube placement in patients with primary spontaneous pneumothorax. And there are two additional randomized control trials that included both primary and secondary spontaneous pneumothorax. And there are a few more prospective papers. In 2017, a Cochrane review found that tube thoracostomy outperformed needle aspiration in immediate success rate. However, there was no difference between the two groups in early failure rate, one-year success rate, and hospitalization rate. And needle aspiration was associated with less adverse events and decreased lengths of hospital stays.
0: This all sounds really great, whether it is going with needle aspiration or a pigtail catheter, sending patients home with a Heimlich valve, which some people do, or just the observation and waiting and watching for that patient to get better. Of course, we are talking about all of this in hemodynamically stable patients with spontaneous pneumothoraces, not the ones that are crashing and dying in front of you. And as we mentioned before, one of the really central pieces of this is not doing it on your own and getting together with your consultants, whether that be your surgeons or your pulmonary folk, and deciding what is the best approach. If you really feel passionate about this, that you don't want to be jamming tubes into patients who don't need the tubes, then talk to those people and decide what's the best way to do this. If we have a protocol in place and we have follow-up in place, it may be very reasonable to do less invasive maneuvers to get those pneumothoraces to resolve. And the hard part, of course, Marco, is that we all love doing procedures. It's very rewarding to place a chest tube or place a pigtail catheter, but it may not be the best thing for the patient. We really do need to think about what's the best for the patient in front of me. If the patient is very symptomatic from that pneumothorax, if you have a larger size pneumothorax, and I'm not talking about the patient who has tension physiology, but just they're very symptomatic, they're very short of breath, maybe a little bit of borderline hypoxia, for whatever reason, you decide you are going to place a drain, what size drain do you think we should be placing? And Marco, let me let me really put your feet to the fire here. Your wife comes in with a spontaneous pneumothorax. It's 30, 35%. She's pretty tachypnic. She's definitely feeling that pneumothorax. What would you
1: place for drainage? Can I say run first? <laughs> <laughs> Tap a colleague. <laughs> no, it's a great question. If we have a simple spontaneous pneumothorax with just air in the pleural space and no blood, no pus, and no effusion, there's ample evidence to support the use of a 14 French pigtail catheter. Now, the consensus statement by the American College of Chest Physicians recommends that stable patients with a pneumothorax get a small bore catheter, and clinically unstable patients can get either a small bore or moderate-sized chest tube.
0: So, either one's okay, and I think some of this will depend on what you're more comfortable with, what you actually have physically in your department. It's great to say I'm going to place a pigtail in all these patients, but some emergency departments don't have pigtails. Some hospitals don't have pigtail catheters available. So you have to use what you have. And if all you have is a small bore chest tube, that's still going to be okay. But obviously a pigtail catheter can be really well used in these kinds of situations as well. We have focused really on the spontaneous pneumothorax, but let's talk a little bit about the traumatic pneumothorax. Often these patients have pneumo and hemothorax. Sometimes you can't tell just from the x-ray whether there's blood or not, but we assume if they had a trauma, now they have a pneumothorax, there's probably blood in that cavity as well. Does the presence of hemothorax change our management in terms of what we're going to place to drain?
1: It does change it a little bit. Now, the size of the chest tube, in part, will be determined by what we're draining. And the rate of drainage is directly proportional to the diameter of the tube. So more viscous fluid like blood or pus is going to require a larger tube. And blood and pus can clot off in the chest tube. It can cause occlusion and malfunction. Now, we would see this as a loss of that normal titling effect, which is the rise in water in the fluid column of the pleurovac, And that normally occurs when breathing or coughing. Now, these occlusions can be self-limiting and they can resolve spontaneously, but if there's not adequate drainage, that patient may require additional procedures like a VATS to evacuate that blood or pus.
0: And what are the current recommendations as far as how big the chest tube needs to be for a traumatic pneumo?
1: Another great question, Swami. So let's unpack that a little bit. There is no consensus for what exactly is a large bore or small bore chest tube. Now, traditionally, most of us treat our trauma-sized chest tubes, which are 28 French and larger, as large bore. The American College of Chest Physicians classifies small bore as 7 to 14 French, moderate bore as 16 to 22 French, and large bore as 24 French or greater. But to answer your question the 10th edition of ATLS recommends a 28 to 32 French chest tube for traumatic hemoneumothorax. Previous editions recommended a 36 to 40 French tube. Now, there is evidence for use of smaller tubes and pigtail catheters in the management of traumatic pneumothorax. And it's reasonable to use a small bore catheter in stable patients without evidence of hemothorax. And there's actually even evidence supporting smaller tubes and pigtails with hemothorax. But at this time, we need more evidence and larger randomized control trials. I wouldn't recommend placing a pigtail or small bore catheter without the approval or guidance of your trauma surgeons. And even the downgrading from a 36 to
0: 40 French chest tube to 28 to 32, that's already a big step in the right direction. And you're right. I think these are going to be very dictated by the exact scenario, the comfort of your trauma surgeons. And there's no reason in a patient with a traumatic hemopneumo to place either a small bore or a pigtail only to have your trauma surgeon say, no, that's not how I want to manage the patient. We're going to put in a larger bore tube. You might as well do that in a much more collegial way and decide what's best for that patient. Now let's say that a patient comes in with a pneumothorax, we pop the chest tube in, everything seems good to go, the patient looks comfortable. What
1: complications do I need to think about early on? There're no established consensus for categorizing complications, and in 2018 a meta-analysis in the Journal of Acute Care Trauma looked at this, and they looked at 5000 patients and found the overall complication rate was about 20%. Our early complications are iatrogenic or things that we typically cause and There are insertional complications where we actually place the chest tube in an adjacent structure, like in the lung parenchyma or in the mediastinum or in the abdomen um, or extra thoracic. Maybe the chest tubes place subcubed. There's also positional complications where the tube is placed within the chest cavity, but maybe the position's not optimal. Now, typically, if we're just draining air in a pneumothorax, we like to see the tip of that chest tube in the apex of the lung field, but sometimes it gets stuck in a fissure and it's not an adequate position. The important thing to know is once you break the sterile field, if the positioning is not optimal, you actually can't advance that tube and you actually just have to remove the tube, discard it, and start over again.
0: Though we're unlikely to see them in the emergency department, usually these patients are going to go up and be managed elsewhere, what are some of the later complications that we should at least know exist?
1: Later complications can be iatrogenic, but they're often out of our control. During removal of the chest tube, you may get reaccumulation of the pneumothorax, or you can see infections such as cellulitis, empyema, or pneumonia, and we mentioned this before, but you can get malfunction of the tube through occlusion, and patients can develop a bronchopleural fistula and have persistent air leaks.
0: And a lot of those complications are going to be based on how we place them. Things like pneumonia and empyema, a lot of this is going to be really dependent on how good our sterile technique is, but if infection is such a common thing. Should we just give everybody prophylactic antibiotics who gets chest tube?
1: There is no good evidence to support the routine use of antibiotic prophylaxis for the placement of a chest tube in primary spontaneous pneumothorax. Antibiotics should be given to patients requiring a chest tube due to chest trauma. And a meta analysis of five trials showed that prophylactic antibiotics reduce the risk of empyema and pneumonia in traumatic pneumothorax. And usually
0: our trauma surgeons are going to be pretty on top of that, but we should know about that too. We should know to make sure in the traumatic patients where we're putting in a chest tube, make sure to give them a dose of antibiotics. Most of the time what I've seen is a dose of ANCEF is being given with that. I think that's a pretty reasonable approach. Again, you can talk to your trauma surgeons and ask them what they prefer, but just keep this on your post-tube checklist of things that you need to make sure that you do. Marco, before we close up for the week, how about some take-home points?
1: Stable patients with small pneumothorax may be managed conservatively with observation. We now have evidence to support the practice of observation in stable patients with large pneumothorax. However, at this point, it's not a widely accepted practice, and additional randomized control trials may have to be performed before this practice gains full acceptance. Needle aspiration is the initial treatment for spontaneous pneumothorax recommended by the British Thoracic Society and European Respiratory Society. One in five patients requiring a chest tube will suffer a complication. Many of these complications are iatrogenic in nature. Procedures with high acuity and limited opportunity should be practiced via simulation to maintain skills. Prophylactic antibiotics should be given in traumatic pneumothorax, but not in spontaneous pneumothorax. And when deciding what treatment strategy is right for your patient, be sure to have institutional buy-in from your home shop and consultants and make sure the patient has adequate close follow-up.
0: That's all for the Rebel core content podcast this week. We'll be back in two weeks with another podcast. If you want to check out more from Rebel EM, hop on over to the site at rebelem.com for all the posts from our amazing team. Unfortunately, as you guys know, the Rebellion and EM conference has been canceled this year due to COVID-19, but hopefully we will be back next year. And until then, stay safe, and we'll see you next time.